else. All righty, so we're going to be uh, studying Second Corinthians for the next few weeks, and I just thought it might be fun. At least it's fun for me. I don't know if it's fun for you. If we do a little pop quiz, right? Because that's always fun for the teacher. And if you flunk it, just know <laughs> it makes feel really good. So just that's a blessing to me because then I'll feel like I'm teaching you something. Okay. So you might have some notes that will help you with this. That our first question here is. Who wrote 2 Corinthians? A, Titus, B, Paul, C, Kareem, D, Timothy. Oh, you guys are seeing them out loud. I thought you would just write them down. Okay, correct. You guys are all such smarty pants. You wanna just yell out the answer, right? We, we've not grown up from third grade. Okay, if anybody needs the notes and wants to write those down, Savea said she's gonna hand those out. Oh, she's telling me, see, we are such a team. I can't do this without her. She's saying, just so you know, on the back is a place where you can write your answers down. But you can also shout it out. That's fine. There's no rules this morning. Okay, so B, Paul is correct. But if you did put down or did think about D, Timothy, you might be correct as well. Uh, the first few verses of 2 Corinthians is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems pretty clear that Paul was the author, but it's possible that Timothy didn't just deliver this letter, that he may have been a co-author, because Paul often uses the words we and our, and some people think that he could be referring to both he and Timothy. Uh, he actually name drops Timothy a lot in this letter. So again, maybe he didn't just send him there to teach, but he also helped write this letter to the Church of Corinth. Okay, next question. Corinth was located between Asia and Italy, in modern day Turkey, Northeast Greece, or in part of the Roman territory in Asia Minor. I would have totally flunked this and I still like I flunk it. So I have the answer in front of me, but just take a guess. <clears throat> Actually, Corinth was located on an isthmus. Is that how you say that? Isthmus. I think it's the only word that rhymes with Christmas. So if you're looking to write a little poem, just put in that word because that will work. Um, Corinth was located on the isthmus between Asia and Italy due to its location in South Central Greece. The city of Corinth achieved a position of prominence very early in the history of Greece. It quickly became a trading center for the entire Mediterranean area. Okay, we're going to be talking about that location later. Okay. Next question. Corinth was closest in population to A, Austin, Minnesota, B, Rochester, Minnesota, C, St. Paul, Minnesota, or D, Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was closest in population to, the words are getting quieter. <laughs> Your response is, it's actually B, Rochester, Minnesota. It had almost 100,000 people living there at the time that this letter was written. Okay, let's move on. Okay, Corinth was known as a city of great agriculture, a city of wealth, a city of poverty, 
or a city of great doctors? Oh, goody. Oh, okay, so you know that it's not a city of great churches. All right. It's Corinth was known as a city of great wealth. Okay, you probably know that. Okay, next question. A structure inside Corinth was A, the corn cob, B, the temple of Zeus, C, the temple of Augusta, and D, the temple of Aphrodite. If you write A down, you are my kind of girl. You are funny. I just had to throw that in there. Okay, Corinth had the temple of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of sexual love and beauty. And I'll let you do further research on that because it's definitely R-rated at minimum. This was a rich temple that owned over 1,000 temple slaves. Ship captains freely squandered their income while stopping at this port, which made the city become quite populated and wealthy. So Corinth could have easily been called the city of sin. So keep that in mind as you're reading this letter to a church in the city. Not once does Paul tell the church to be afraid or to flee, but he does tell them to not be unequally yoked, to take every thought captive, and also to be Christ's ambassador right where you're at. Okay. Where there was a six here. In 146 BC, Corinth was destroyed. Corinth was made the capital of Greece. Corinth was captured by Julius Caesar. Corinth merged with the city of Athens. I know. Who, who really knows this? I mean, if you know this, then you need to be up here, <laughs> clearly. Uh, okay, it's actually A. The Greek city had been destroyed and captured by Rome in 146 BC. So before that, it was Greek. Now it became kind of a melting pot. Nearly 200 years later, Corinth was rebuilt by Julius Caesar and 2 Corinthians was written. The city of Corinth at this time was a melting pot of Greek and Roman cultures and a city known for wealth, beauty, and knowledge. It was a prosperous city, but also known for its immorality. And from a completely pagan standpoint, what more is there than wealth, beauty, and knowledge, right? I mean, it's very godless, but it had um, definitely received some prominence. Okay, last question. Most scholars believe that there is just one original letter to the Church of Corinth, that there are two original letters to the Church of Corinth, that there are three original letters to the Church of Corinth, or that there are actually four original letters to the Church of Corinth. Or you guys, you should be up here. Most scholars do believe that there are actually four separate letters that were written to the Church of Corinth. Paul's initial ministry in Corinth lasted approximately 18 months. So he first went there for 18 months. So when you think about that, he really built a good relationship with these people. That is a huge amount of time for him to have invested in Corinth. You can read about that in Acts 18. When Paul first arrived in Corinth in AD 51, he walked into a flourishing metropolis of nearly 100,000 residents, but still with many tourists. It was in Corinth that Paul met the faithful missionary couple, Aquila and Priscilla. 
And again, you can check that out in Acts 18. Now, the reason many scholars believe there were four different letters sent to the Church of Corinth is because within this letter and other New Testament passages, there are references to letters sent to Corinth that we don't have any record of. Though there are references to them, they have been lost and not included in our Bibles. So we're just going to go through and talk briefly about what those four letters are. First off, Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth is referred to in 1 Corinthians 5.9. So in our first letter in our Bibles, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul refers to another letter that he had already sent this church. And he says to them, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, right? They have this temple, there's temple sex slaves. So that was obviously a big issue then. And all we know about the content of this letter is that it advised against associating with believers who continue to practice sexual immorality. And scholars refer to this letter as letter A, but again, we have no record of it. The second letter, um, backing up here, Paul her reports from Chloe's household of divisions in the church of Corinth. He also received a letter from the Corinthians with questions on matters such as marriage, food sacrificed to idols, and other practical concerns, kind of like how to follow Jesus in these very specific ways. 1 Corinthians, what we know as 1 Corinthians, was then written in response to these questions. So 1 Corinthians is what most scholars believe to be Paul's second letter to Corinth. So we refer to this as letter B. It's not exactly clear what happened next, but it seems likely that Timothy, um, his messenger, returned from delivering letter B to the church with news that the situation had deteriorated significantly. So then Paul, broken by this, made an unplanned visit to Corinth. This visit did not go well, and Paul calls this visit painful. Um, you can look at 2 Corinthians 2.1 for reference on that. Also in 2 Corinthians 7, it actually says that Paul left in a state of grief over the Corinthian sin. So upon returning to Ephesus, Paul composed an emotional letter written out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears. And this letter is lost, but referred to as letter C, a really heart-wrenching letter that we do know was written by Paul to the church. And lastly, Titus eventually brought Paul the encouraging news that the Corinthians had responded favorably to this strongly worded letter. However, he also brought news of a new threat, missionaries from Judea who were undermining Paul's credibility. They did not feel that anyone could be an apostle and still have experienced as much suffering as Paul had. They said, surely this cannot be a man of God, and they were undermining his um, integrity. So I just find that interesting that even 2,000 years ago, the health and wellness false theology was alive and well. Uh, Paul responded with what we know as 2 Corinthians, which encourages the church onward, onward to follow the way of Jesus that changes lives. He encouraged the church to not remain stagnant, but to value humility, generosity, and strength and weakness. And this letter is referred to as letter D. So as best as we know, we can assume that there are actually four different letters that were written to the church of Corinth, but we only have record of two of them. 2 Corinthians is a letter of encouragement from a dear friend, Paul, to his spiritual brothers and sisters in Corinth. They were an imperfect church. They had been through tough stuff, 
And although they were doing better than more difficult days in the past, they still needed this letter to remind them that because of Christ, they were a new creation and should keep focused onward on things above, or as Paul would say, as things that are unseen. We can receive great encouragement from this letter from Paul to the church in this growing successful city. There will be some things that we can really relate to, and there will be other things that we won't relate to at all. And to be honest, I have to admit, I find church life a bit like family life, right? Who gathered with extended family over the holidays? Maybe you had a house full or you went to a house full. And wasn't it so much fun and such a blessing? I loved having all my kids and my parents in our home all under the same roof. It was so sweet. And yet it was so not perfect <laughs> because we are not perfect people. Sometimes there were moments I might be embarrassed to share with you because as your Bible teacher, you wouldn't want to know how we responded. There were times I got crabby and there were times we did not interact in a way that was holy and pleasing to God. I'm sure you guys all did at your family gatherings, but we had some imperfect moments. Sometimes there were things that were said that were hurtful and we would need to have a long conversation about the real underlying issue and what was needing to be communicated. Sometimes there were decisions that were made that I was not in favor of. One night we watched a movie that I just thought, why are we watching this? Um, we also often decided to have a fourth large meal of the day, and it really bugged me. It was just like, this was not on the agenda, and now we've eaten tomorrow's food. And so I wouldn't have made that decision and did not find it necessary. But at the end of the day, I love my family, and I wouldn't change the time that we share for anything. But we are certainly far from perfect, just like I love my church family. And I was so excited, so excited to gather with you all this morning. I've missed you over the last few weeks and I prayed for you. But just like our families, no church family is perfect either. And that was certainly true for the church of Corinth. So now that you have a little background on this body of believers in Corinth, I wanted us to look at three areas Paul encourages this church to move onward. First, he says, move onward comforting. Onward comforting. And we're just going to look at verses three through six in the first chapter here. <clears throat> he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. So we find out in chapter 7 that Paul was greatly relieved or comforted by the news from Titus that the Corinthians have responded favorably to that strongly worded letter C. Remember that letter that we've lost, but we know that some type of strong worded letter was sent. And I wonder how many of us can relate to Paul. Maybe we know we need to confront someone or address some difficult issues. We may not want to do this, but we know that in obedience, we have to do it. And it's not easy to have that kind of conversation, right? But we do it because we love others and we do it out of compassion. And most importantly, we do it out of obedience to God. And when it goes well, as it appears it did for Paul, it is just so sweet. And an interaction like that, I think it not only takes humility on the side of the one confronting, but also humility on the one who's being confronted. 
It's hard to imagine that confrontation can be associated with comfort, but there is nothing more comforting than when you honestly confront someone speaking the truth in love and they respond well to it. Isn't that such a blessing? Because maybe you envision all the ways that that conversation could go. And when it goes well, you are so grateful. Paul recognizes that even though it was the Corinthians who responded so well, it is actually God who is the source of all comfort. The Greek word here for comfort occurs more frequently in this little book, this letter to the Corinthians than anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul is drawing on so many Old Testament passages that describe God as our comforter. And I think it's interesting because so many people think that the God of the Old Testament is harsh, but when you read these passages from Isaiah, you find that God is so caring and so personal and comforting. Isaiah 51, 12 through 13 says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mere mortals, human beings who are but grass? But you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretches out the heavens and who lays the foundations of the earth. And that's just amazing because it shows the awe of God, how he holds everything in place. And yet he comforts us. He's a great comforter. Isaiah 66, 13 says, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. And um, I raised four children and did everything I could to do that. But I tell you what, even still to this day, my youngest is 15. I hear a baby cry and my body, this is more than you need to know, but physically responds. <laughs> I mean, my cat is whimpering and I'm like, take care of the cat, you know? I mean, women, mothers, we respond such in such a comforting way, like no other to their babies. And that is how it's described of God is that he cares for us, he comforts us. In verse 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God is our merciful father and the God of all comfort. And I think about that when I'm praying to God, how he holds the heavens in place and the stars in place, and yet he cares for me. And I feel, I feel sorry for people who are deists and just think that God made this world and he doesn't desire a personal relationship with us. He's not personal at all because we get to believe in both, that God is supreme and he's almighty and he's maker of heavens and earth, but he also comforts us. Now we have to keep in mind that these believers were not living in Rochester, Minnesota or Wichita, Kansas or Tampa, Florida, whatever. Um, all those cities were listed as like the most moral cities, not Rochester, but Wichita and Tampa. So this was not like a morally astute city. It was not on the top 10 list of like where to raise your children for the best you know, way to raise them. This is Corinth. This is the city of sin that even the people who um, were alive at the time would joke about heading there to have a good time for sensual pleasures. And isn't it easy for us to think that there is no way God's comfort can match my struggle here? This trial, this location where I'm at, this marriage, this parenting dilemma, this painful journey, whatever you might be walking through, God's comfort is enough to bind up your broken hearted, to heal your most painful wounds, and also to give hope and joy under the heaviest of sorrows. Knowing the God of all comfort means that we can be comforted in the midst of any trial. You know, sometimes I want God's comfort to take away my trial. It's like, that's what I define as like real comfort. But sometimes God's comfort matches and goes above and beyond our trial. It does not mean that the trial is still not challenging, but in the midst of it, we can be a people who feel peace because we know the God of all comfort is with us through each valley. 
And not only do we benefit from this, but so do others, because the world is watching. When we trust in God in the midst of suffering, we encourage others to persevere in the midst of their suffering. And we are people where we kind of stop and watch when someone is struggling, when someone is suffering. Because if you've ever been on a highway when there's been an accident, what happens? Everybody slows down and all of a sudden they care what's going on up to the left of them. And so people are watching us when we're going through tough stuff. And I gotta say, that is what I love about gathering together in women's Bible study. It's beautiful that we can dig into scriptures together, but I've experienced so much from just watching you all. When you and my fellow sisters in Christ have walked through a health crisis or parenting challenges or trials at your job or even mistreatment for your faith, I am taking mental notes of how your faith is steady in the storm because you are anchored in the Lord. So when I experience something similar, it is your testimony that makes these verses come to life and it encourages me. Comfort in the midst of suffering will be a theme that repeats itself throughout this book. Paul will be encouraging the church that even though the earthly tent is wasting away, we are being renewed day by day. God is the God of all comfort because he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He who was rich became poor for us. He reconciled himself to us all so that we could be made a new creation, focusing on what is unseen or focusing not on what is seen because that's not very comforting, right? It's not long lasting comfort, but we focus on what is unseen. All right, next point, he tells them, move onward in forgiveness, onward forgiving. And I have to say that even just recently, I learned something about this and this was even convicting for me. Forgiveness is more than just verbally telling someone you forgive them. Sometimes that's where I stop. It's like, okay, I've forgiven them. It's fine, move on. I just don't want to talk to them, <laughs> right? Uh, second Corinthians, let's look at the second chapter, verses five through 11. Paul says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So this is kind of a confusing passage. It's pretty fascinating because we don't really know the specifics here, but we get the idea that there's been some painful incident, especially when you read this chapter um, aligned with chapter seven. Although we don't know the offense or the offender, Paul makes it clear that he has learned from Titus that the punishment was sufficient, has had the desired effect. Even still, Paul indicates that there is still pain there. People are still grieved by the situation. So the discipline was effective and brought about repentance. So he says in verse seven to forgive and comfort him so that the offender will not be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. And in other versions, it actually says that this person will not be swallowed up in excessive grief. That's quite a word picture. And this makes me realize that it's not just important to forgive our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. 
but we have to then bring them back into fellowship once they have been restored. Otherwise, it says we may be giving the enemy an advantage that he might outsmart us. So I thought it'd be interesting to do a little review here of the process in dealing with a fellow believer, someone within the church who has sinned and caused grief, right? Our first thing that we need to do 